0: At the end of such a long line of attention-seeking siblings, I found myself with a mother who was pretty much exhausted by the time she had me. In fact, her 11th birth was so traumatic it almost killed her. And when Dr Scanlon told her another pregnancy could prove fatal, she proclaimed that if it was God's will, so be it. Fortunately, he gave her an emergency hysterectomy and my prized position as baby of the family was permanently secured. Thanks, Doc. Being the baby of such a massive brood, I always felt mum and I shared an extra special bond. So when I read about Joy and how she, as the youngest of eight, was forced to make the agonizing choice between her freedom and her mum, I wanted to hear all about it. Welcome to my fucked up family. Nason, welcome so much to My Fucked Up Family.
1: Thank you. That's the
0: first time I've said your name out loud. I have said it correctly, haven't I? Y- yes, you have. Yeah, right. It's been so great to be exposed to your story. You gave me your book very kindly uh, last week and I consumed that in just over a day.
1: Glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. I really loved it. Thank
0: you. It's very nice of you to say so. But this isn't a book review. This is My Fucked Up Family. Yes. And you do have a a really interesting My Fucked Up Family story to tell us, Joy. So I wonder if you could start by just giving us a little background of
1: the family growing up. Well, it was funny. When you said Joy Nason Mm -hmm. and it was the first time you'd said it, it, it actually immediately rang a bell because my entire life I've always had to repeat my name because it was the usual Spelling is, is usually Mason. My um, father always said N for nobody because my father was such a downtrodden person, he'd say N for nobody. <laughs> so, for a start, that's a funny thing. Yeah. And the next funny thing is Joy in itself. <laughs> my name, because I, I've always felt it was a name that you had to live up to. Yeah. So, you. I, <laughs> You always had someone ask you your name. You couldn't very well be down in the mouth, could you? So, so yeah. For for a start, the name's funny, isn't it? It, it is. And then uh, yes, and I was the youngest of eight, uh, but I was an afterthought, a war baby. The seven others were you know, a lot older than me. In fact, my eldest uh, sister was already left home when I was born. So yeah, it was pretty a pretty wide. Widely spaced family. How how old was
0: your your next closest sibling?
1: The next closest sibling was seven. Right.
0: Yeah, oh, okay. so it was a, that, it was that a was long a big, time. That was yeah, a big gap. big gap. Oh, you were an oops.
1: I was, yeah. uh, and um, but I, and I, I didn't. You know, it just felt good. You know, I, I I think I was probably was fairly spoiled. I suppose a little little kid as mm. an afterthought. Big family, um, but it, it, there, there is no doubt we were from. as I described, the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, And also being in um, uh, war-torn England, food was scarce. So I always felt poor. Yeah. I actually did.
0: Tell us a little bit about your family's religious inclinations back in those days.
1: Well, the thing is my family's... Religion did influence everything, Mm. there is no doubt, Mm. and had for generations already. Oh, right. When I was born, yes, yes. I was born into it. They were born into it, both of them. Mm. And um, What what religion was that? Well, in those days it was just called the Brethren Mm -hmm. um, and I came to learn that there was two main branches of the Brethren, one open Brethren Mm. and the other closed or exclusive Brethren and I had the misfortune to be born into the exclusive Exclusive, Brethren, which were a very closed group. But growing up I always felt we were looked down on, we were low in the pecking order, I I, um, I think I was probably right. Right. I, I think that maybe um, it was good because that sort of sect is always ruled by powerful people mm. um, and we were rank and file. Mm. And I believe um, my father was always picked on or looked down on by the hierarchy. Uh, so it's not perhaps surprising that my father moved from from time to time, probably to get away from people that he'd argued with in the religion. And I would say there is no doubt that that, that uh, religion ruled our lives. Right. Even when it was a fairly what you would call a fundamentalist religion but without uh, being extreme, it was verging on the extreme, right. I would say. Right. And this was, that, that, that was, was that
0: kind of your experience more in Britain and then you moved out to Australia Mm. and it became much more extreme?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, Paul, that's what happened. Uh, My father wanted a better life. Uh It was the the wave of post-war immigration to to Australia and he went and, uh, uh, you know, the other side of the world beckoned the warmer climate, the chance to better himself. Good on him. Mm. Uh, But he had to run the gauntlet of being... a this being move being approved mm. by these brethren, and he had to have I always I think it's funny, you know we all had to have you know passports, but that didn't matter anywhere near as much as getting his brethren passport, his letter of commendation it was called, um, so that he could go to the other side of the world. it was considered. Um, you know, not the done thing. You, you didn't move so and, much. And considering
0: that you, you described him as having a few run-ins with the hierarchy, yeah, yeah. do you think it ever crossed his mind to, to just leave them? Like especially in the move to Australia, you think, well, this might be a prime opportunity for us just to get rid of these people.
1: Oh, no, no, not ever for a moment. Really? When you're born in there, like, they're right. They, they, were the, they were the chosen few. I mean, that's part of the whole, uh, well, of course, it's mind control, but you don't know it when you're in there. Mm. And he would have uh, just always been striving to live up to their standards and it exactly was repeated in my experience. But, but in his case, he um, left a year ahead of us to mm. get to Sydney, find a job, find accommodation uh it's amazing really when you think of it and when when the chips were down we said okay right we, we had to look at the family and say okay who was going to come because the eldest two had left home the next two down had got jobs and one and then the uh, fifth my fifth brother uh, was um, doing national service. Right. Because it was in the early 50s. Mm. So it, left, it just left my mother and the three youngest to come out. So straight away, we're all split. Yeah. Straight away, the family is not a complete unit. Yeah. I mean, mm. my mother left behind everything she knew. Mm. Uh, and it, she had been married for, you know, a lifetime to this, to my father, who, who was a difficult man, mm. Def, definitely a difficult man, and, and you know, quite. quite a violent temper actually Uh, and all the kids got the wrong end of his uh, of the strap Mm. he he never laid a finger on my mother he loved her but he was a very difficult man terrific temper and all this but she had to leave behind everything she'd known her five older her children and just take the three youngest to Australia on this it must have literally seemed like going to the end of the world so already you've got the seeds haven't you of dysfunction Mm. Mm. you've got you know this amazing journey and and you've got the religious a- aspect which never left you which was always at the um govern everything you did mm. um y- you know you didn't really think for yourself it was very insidious back then mm. um y- you just knew you were fr- you you had to do the right thing in the eyes of god i mean you, you know that, that was how you were brought up. So
0: then there's what? So there's five of you then who are in Australia. And
1: then the other brother who just left National Service when he was discharged, he came to join us. Right. So at that stage there were four children in Australia. Sydney. Yes, that's correct. And um, all of us were in this Brethren mm. movement. Mm. But the four that had stayed behind were, of course, had been in the Brethren movement and were more or less still been, you know, but not very strongly. And then they uh, developed their own lives. But soon my eldest brother, uh, who was 20 years older than me, uh, he was a staunch Brethren person and he moved to Sydney as well with his wife. So we then had five of us with three in England and those three uh, eventually didn't have anything to do with the brethren whatsoever.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? so what what do you think was it just because they weren't sort of enveloped in your family so much with your mum and dad, yeah. that they gradually just drifted away from it.
1: I think that's probably a good good uh, summation. Yeah. I would say they more or less could please themselves, yeah, right. and they didn't weren't didn't necessarily see eye to eye, so they could, you know, it didn't matter so much,
0: and we're talking. We're getting into the sixties now, aren't we?
1: Yes, when we get into the sixties, that's was the the worst time, mm. the worst time of all worldwide for the people in this exclusive brethren movement.
0: Right. So, what was the impact of that and your
1: family in Australia? It was a huge impact because the leader was from America, uh, and um, was. Went under all sorts of titles. Mainly, the Man of God was the main one, and his word was law, and you didn't challenge it, not in any aspect. And if people are interested, you know, uh, I recommend they read the history of the Exclusive Brethren. Uh, actually, Michael Batchelor, the investigative editor of of the Age, wrote a wonderful book on the exclusive brethren and there is no doubt that in the 60s they became an extremist cult mm. how that impacted on families it 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 was tragic it impacted on families worldwide and i'm not exaggerating
0: how many how many members did they have in their in their heyday
1: in their heyday about 40,000 members right. worldwide, worldwide mainly in america australia and england mm-hmm. mainly a few little outposts around the place uh, but the impact on families and everyone was this, they brought in the, the the most extreme and strict thing was called the eating question. It's still known as the eating question. <laughs> and it was that you weren't allowed to eat, literally eat anything with anyone that wasn't um, actually formally within the religion. And it didn't matter whether it was close family, friends, work, whatever. It was carte blanche. That was it. You had to obey it. And you didn't question it. And Paul, that's the interesting thing, the unquestioned abeyance, the unquestioned adherence to the word of the man of God and his henchmen, wherever they may be in Australia in this case. So we had to write letters to our brothers and sisters, literally our own families and our all the family in in England, saying we could no longer have anything to do with them.
0: So that actually happened to your siblings. Yes, you
1: yes, you were yeah. kind
0: of excommunicating Abs- them,
1: even though they were in English even though I mean they're already there in ink, yeah but we couldn't write to them, we couldn't have anything to do with them and had they been in Australia and not in the brethren, we couldn't have seen them. but, but we had to write and these letters, can you imagine?:
0: And did you have to participate in the writing of
1: these? Oh oh yes, and I did it very fervently. Right. I mean there was other other um, just quickly to illustrate how you can be. You know, drawn into this sort of thing. One of the things was we weren't allowed to read any fiction uh, suddenly. And that included nursery rhymes, you know, or any fiction whatsoever. So we had a bonfire. So there I was throwing, you know, wind in the willows, out he went, you know, and all this sort of thing, all wonderful books, you know, that I'd loved as a teenager into this bonfire with great fervour. And I wrote a letter to my my brothers and sisters saying, we can no longer have anything to do with you because we're the chosen ones and all this sort of thing. It was a complete withdrawal. In fact, that's right, the Exclusive Brethren called it their charter. There's some verse in the Bible, 2 Timothy 2. Gosh, I, can, I haven't thought about that for about 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> oh, you're having flashbacks. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> um, Come out ye from among them and be ye separate. Uh, from the unclean you know it was a it was a withdrawal charter from the world we were supposed to be in the world but not of it it's amazing how much comes back to you and, oh we couldn't work for non-brethren either
0: okay yeah. now, now now so that's interesting because you got around that didn't you
1: well, it was a miracle. <laughs> I had a really good job with a great company and a, the, it was a pastoral company and their head office was in, in uh, the city. And I was a secretary, just loved it. And then of course we had to leave, didn't we? They found me a job for actually a roofing, uh, brethren roofing firm in, in Glebe, I don't always remember it. So off I went and there I was, you know. And then by some miracle, they there was a bit of a moratorium, you might call it now. But I had a chance, I could, go you could work for non-Bresner again. Perhaps they didn't have enough jobs to go around when yeah, you come to right. think of it. And my wonderful boss, I went and I spoke to him in, in, in the land company and he welcomed me back. He said, yes, you know, you'd love to have me back. So I went back. And in fact, Paul, from that point comes an interesting thing of a pipeline to the outside world. Mm. Look, if people are born into cults, Mm. they have no pipeline to the outside world. So I had this job which was good. I saw people going about their normal way of life not to do the brethren. And to me, the brethren were the only right people in the world. But somehow if you get to see have a glimpse of something outside your closed surroundings, something gets into you. And then with any luck, (laughs) perhaps a bit of luck mixed in, the scales fall from people's eyes. Mm. Well, what I was really was itching to get out there and have a good time, (laughs) like I saw all the people in the office. Oh, it was wonderful. And in fact... Um I did crazy things like going and getting my hair done at a hairdresser which was a no Um and uh, and then brushing it all out and putting my hat on to go home. You know, just to have a feeling what it was like to be a worldly person. That was one of their expressions. But of course I had my family at home you know, I had my brother and sister and my elder brother and you know, all these nieces and nephews and my mother and father, you know.
0: So you were surrounded you were surrounded by this very sort of Ultra conservative closed yes, community. Yes. Yes. Yet every Monday to Friday, yes, every yes. day, you are coming into the city mm, and being mm. exposed to these other people. Exactly. Who, who you're being warned against. Exactly. And did you see? Did you see them? Did, did, you must have had trouble, sort of like reconciling what you were told about people from the, the outside world and what you were experiencing. Because I imagine you made friends.
1: Yes, but. Yes, but you weren't allowed to make friends, and that was the embarrassing thing because these people that had been really nice to me at work, like they'd say they'd have a cake for a birthday, suddenly you couldn't share a cake with them or anything like that. Because you you're know, allowed to eat with you not allowed to eat with them and this sort of thing. So I guess I was in yeah, yeah, I was in, in pretty much conflict, I guess. Mm. Uh but I always felt my yearnings, they were sinful, you see. Now mm. see, that's where um people have got you. And See, it's funny, you're in the Exclusive Brethren, it was the three Fs. Anyone that left the Exclusive exclusive Brethren always knew about the three Fs. Which what are was the three Fs? Fear, finance and families. Not what you were thinking. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's
0: a bit disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Fe- fear, finance and families. Yeah, meaning so you're fucked. You've got it. But yeah. I didn't even know that word yeah, then. Yeah, right. Like literally. Um, I mean, I was so green and so sheltered. Because we were. I mean, we, we weren't allowed to. I mean, actually, to be perfectly honest, the, 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 these sorts of cults and things, they really do fuck up a person's life. You, you had no said moral comes. You had nothing to go by. They they controlled your every thought, word and deed uh, and what you wore, you know. And and if you had thoughts um, that you realised were a bit outside what the brethren's teaching were, it was that you were the sinner and that was the, always the thing. I always felt I was a sinner and and it does affect you. Mm. I mean, I, I actually, I know, I was like skin and bone when I was in there and, um, and I used to shake because, mm. like, you always, I suppose you've heard of the rapture, like, mm. have you? Yes. Mm. Well, the But rap-
0: explain to us what the rapture is. Yeah. Well,
1: the rapture, well, it was used as a threat, of course, to sinners um, because the rapture is supposed to be this wonderful thing where Jesus comes again. We all get taken up in the clouds and... Um, and, um, and if you weren't saved, that it means if you didn't believe in Jesus, well, you'd be left behind. And it was terrifying. I, I can't tell you when I was, you know, at high school at the times, I'd come home, maybe there wasn't anyone there, and there should be, and I'd be like a quivering mass of, of, of fear, of like literally, because I thought the rapture had happened. And I'd go out and, I'd, and then maybe I'd see Mrs. So-and-so up the street, you know, and i think, oh, rapture can't have happened because she'd be saved, you know. Yeah. And actually there's been some funny cartoons. I always remember a cartoon I saw once of all these planes falling out the sky and all these cars crashing on the Los Angeles freeway because the rapture had happened and all these people were saved and gone up to heaven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want your pilot. Well, you don't, well, want, you your don't want your pilot to be no. a Christian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> and isn't it isn't it just crazy oh, it sure is
0: but then at some point possibly because of your your involvement in working outside of the brethren you decide that it's not for you yes so what age are you then
1: joy i was 25 yeah. and it, and i realized that i would have to get out of this religion and, and and all that that meant because the world leader was coming out to Sydney in nine months' time. Oh, oh, oh. Funny how little things stick in your mind. And I had all this family. I had all these nieces and nephews that I, I adored. I had my brothers and sisters, my mother and father. But I felt I couldn't stand to, to the... Uh, I couldn't face being in a meeting with this man of God, this leader, and I was such a sinner. And really all I'd done was sort of like, let's say, just being, you know. Had your hair done. And my hair done <laughs> and being friendly with people at work. Um, and, but I knew that it meant being cut off from everything. Forever from a family, I but, knew
0: that. But but why did the, 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 the his, his uh, impending visit? Oh. What, what was it that? that
1: oh, oh, I haven't told you about. Oh, all the confession sessions. Yeah right. Oh, they were just something else. I tell you, a packed hall at Asheville, two thousand people. You know, and and the and the elders would call out for people to confess their sins. And people would just come up, you know, grab a microphone and confess these incredible sins, and everyone would be there all absolutely agog. Of course now I know you know how, you know the the elves and things were salivating at all the good sex stories they heard
0: yeah you know, were they mainly mainly or oh,
1: mainly sex. yeah for and I didn't you know you didn't even know what that meant yeah. half the time, but yeah. honestly and yeah, so and
0: so you you felt that when he came and visited, there'd be a confession yeah, session. Absolutely, and that you would be somehow compelled to get up yeah. there and say, oh, "I've had my hair done."
1: Yeah. Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, or I've been friendly with you know friendly with someone from work. I don't. Oh, I know. Yeah, I'd gone to the movies. Yeah, right. So, so it
0: gave you a deadline,
1: I guess. Well, it didn't. It just so there you go. Uh, <clears throat> yes, hadn't thought of it that way, well, but it did. And I wanted to prepare my mother. I uh, don't want to get too emotional here, um, but you, uh, w- 10 years before, yeah, I had a brief escape. G- a girlfriend and I um, uh, escaped in the middle of the night. We had a flip from the breath, and I thought I was going to leave forever, but uh, I, I was only 16. <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh, of course, it was doomed to failure, but my girlfriend had a, a very um, nice older boyfriend, and they managed to make it on the outside. When I came, when I I only lasted a few weeks and I had to go back with my tail between my legs. And the elders said to me at the time that my girlfriend and boyfriend uh, would, would, would never survive, that they wouldn't, but of course they have. Mm. Uh, so, and of course it was a, it was a terrible um, time for my mother and father back then, very humiliating, humiliating. And, and, and embarrassing. So this time I thought I'll do it properly, I'll prepare them and it took a long, long time. And of course, I had to make preparation myself because I knew I would have to leave home, because you couldn't leave the brethren and not leave home and leave everything. That was not even, even remotely ne- negotiable. No, nothing. And I knew that my brothers and sisters, my nieces and nephews, everyone would be cut off to me. So, so it took a bit to prepare like where was I going to live, what was I going to do. Luckily I had my job, thank goodness, and I wanted to prepare my mother that I was disagreeing with the brethren. Now that's the big issue and I've read about a lot of people since who have left that that was a thing, letting somebody know you disagree because it was so extreme that you couldn't even say a word against anything because you'd automatically face excommunication. So I wanted to leave. So I start to say, oh, I don't know whether that's really right. I don't know whether Mr. So-and-so was right when he said that. And then towards the end I started to miss meetings because they went seven, you had to go seven times a week and three times on Sundays in those days. In the 60s, yeah. And I started to miss some of them. And, of course, my mother started to worry. But at least I was preparing her. Mm. And so so it went on. So finally a, a very lovely person who I knew that had left the brethren, I contacted her and told her I was thinking of leaving. She said she'd put me up in the first few nights or weeks. Mm. So, yeah, those are all the things you have to do. So mm. I did all that. Mm. Um, and, so tell us yeah.
0: about the day then that you actually left.
1: Well, it came to what they call the monthly care meeting. I, The last one I went to I knew in... The next one, I would have to be gone. And it was always a Saturday. And I, so in the preceding weeks, I gradually missed more and more meetings. And that week, I'd missed them all. And it came to getting ready for this Saturday care meeting. And my parents stood there and I came out and I said, I'm not going. They'd have known absolutely then that I was lost to them forever. Because you didn't miss the care meeting. You just didn't. And I had written the letter the night before all about telling them where I was going, why I was leaving, all this sort of thing to hopefully soften the blow. And as soon as they'd gone out to this care meeting, I left it on the kitchen table and then I'd piled everything into the car and I I remember driving away. Yeah, I remember, you know, knowing it was forever. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, But I think... But it, something, like, spurs you on. Um, it's funny. You know, you think it's this it sounds all really, really serious and dramatic, but, you know, I, I guess from one point of view it is. But in another point, no, look, I was young. I was, you know, uh, 25 and a bit, you know, um, uh, a whole world in front of me. I was going to do my own thing. You know, and adrenaline m- moves. You. you know, you really don't think, I don't think I'd... N- thought all that deeply about it, except that I'd escaped. Right. You know? But I still thought I was a sinner and all that, you know?
0: But when you when you closed the door behind you, was there sadness?
1: It, no, I'd say more, more fear, more right. I'm this sinner and now I'm going into this world and now the devil's going to get me. I was more worried about how I was going to cope and manage the wrath of the brethren, the devastating effect on my mother and father, I guess. But the worst time did come actually three weeks after that. Why? What happened then? Well, there's this care meeting again, they <laughs> happened once a month. So I'd left on one care meeting and I knew that by the next... They'd have to withdraw from me, officially excommunicate me. That's how it worked. And so within that three weeks time, they tried everything to get me back, like you know, give sort of threats about you know I'd be you know lost forever to God and everything. And yeah, and one of the things my dear sister and her husband uh, came and met me then uh, because I. As I said, I told them where I was living. They knew where I worked. They knew where I'd get off the railway station. And um, she came with the new baby, my latest nephew, in a bassinet and just held the bassinet out and said, this is the nephew you will never see, very dramatically. You know, that sort of thing. They tried everything. So that emotional blackmail. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of the three weeks in probably the day before the next came in, or whatever, I knew I had to go, the, that they would be convinced. They were just waiting for that time. They had to be convinced and I made it to, the, to that next time. And But I knew I had to get the rest of my things then from my, my parents, from my house because I, you, you had to because then I could never go back. Mm-hmm. Like once they'd excommunicated you, you were literally dead to them. Mm-hmm. So I went and I arranged with my mother that I would keep, collect the rest of my things. And so I got to the front door and I knocked on the door and she opened the door. Yeah, funny, isn't it? I'm talking about 1968, and right now it's like yesterday. Wow. <laughs> um, she was like a wizened prune. And I said, Mum whatever's wrong, and she just gave a weak sort of smile and she was hanging on to the door and she said, I've been fasting to get you back. And I had to go in, collect, and she just opened the door of my room. There are all my things, all the rest of my belongings, and I had to get them all out and put them in the car. And I had to, um, um you know, go back and... You know, and I put the rest of the things and stood at the door and just look at my mother and she looked at me, and of course there was no question. I knew there could be no embrace, no nothing. I knew nothing. And I knew that it was for, at a forever moment. And for years after, in fact, had, that, had a bit of a, it's a bit of a funny impact. And, again, you know, you think you're completely over all this. You've had a wonderful life. life. Please be assured I've had a great life. (laughs) I've had loads of fun and I'm fine. (laughs) And I'm comfortable in my own skin. But you asked me directly about that day. Yeah, yeah, that never leaves you. It was such a huge burning moment in my mind that, as you can tell, has never left Mm. me. Um it, it was so sh- shocking to me to see the effect of, of what I had done, just because I wanted to leave and have a good time and be a worldly person, had on my dear poor mother that I loved.
0: That's just, <clears throat> that's just heart-wrenching. I, 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 you know, I don't know how you managed the strength to do that. So actually leaving the house that time, must have been more traumatic for you.
1: It, it actually, yes, it was. And it, I guess the the drive, I've always thought the drive back was a blur, um, you know, to where I was living. Uh, but then life went on. And I guess I must be a bit like that. I put things behind me. You know, I just move on. Um, I had to. You
0: must be very good at compartmentalising <laughs> things, do you think? Like, Psychologically, do you think?
1: I like that word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In fact, I've got a fifteen-year-old grandson. I've just got one grandson, and I've always thought he's terrifically good at compartmentalising in in his life. He's only a kid. Oh, maybe gets it from me. That'd be nice, wouldn't
0: it? It's a a good skill, isn't it? Just to be able to pack something up and just like uh,
1: yeah, I can't quite deal with that
0: at the moment. Let's just forget about that and go on to this other thing.
1: Well, guess what? My heroine in life is Scarlett O'Hara. There you go, (laughs) and she'll think about it tomorrow.
0: We'll pick up on Joy's tomorrows next time on My Fucked Up Family.
1: Then one day the phone rang and he said, Joy, they've taken Mum, they've taken her from me. And we went to the door and knocked at the door and someone called out from inside, who's there? And I said, it's Joy, I want to see my mother.